0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annie and Kate. Today we have Annie Parker uh, and Michelle Duval. Over to you, Annie, to do the introductions.
1: Good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm coming through to you from a, a tiny ass northern town uh, in the north of England. Uh, it's raining outside, which is very British. Uh, it's, it's sort of greeted me with a ton of drizzle. Um, so it's it's lovely to be able to speak to two very friendly faces this morning to brighten up my day. Um, so Michelle Duval. Uh, Michelle and I have known each other for a little while now. And uh, she's got a super interesting uh, career history so far. So let's do a quick intro and then we're going to dig into some questions and do our general chat. So Michelle has, for more than 20 years now, um, been working with inventors, people who've built businesses, Using the the tools and the cultures of tomorrow to to basically create the world's future. During her childhood, her father owned a small fashion business representing lots of global fashion brands. But passionate as he was about his business, um, and the family sort of had to traverse all of the ups and downs of of what business life looks like, particularly when you're own your own one and you don't get paid all of the time and All that kind of stuff. Um, Michelle remembered thinking that there's got to be a better way of running these businesses. Sadly, at age 12, he wasn't ready to listen to her advice back then. (laughs) Um, So when she eventually started her own company in 1997, which um, if if those of you don't know, Michelle is one of Australia's most uh, lauded professional business coaches. Uh, in fact, probably one of the w- the best in the world, I would say. Uh, that's my view. She can tell me off later for saying that. Um, and, you know, and having worked with creative artists, actors, writers, producers, inventors, um, you know, figuring out that these business owners were somewhat successful, some struggling, and she noticed that if they were able to you know, sort of facilitate and navigate changes in their personal attitudes, then other important things happened with their businesses as well. She could see a direct relationship between the personal work and clients making a genuine difference around the world as well. And after noticing that relationship, she and her team were ide- eager to identify you know, sort of empirical or scientific ways to test theses that people's motivations and attitudes influence their business outcomes. Something that I completely agree with, and I can't wait to share a little bit more about your business, Fingerprint for Success, and everything that you've been up to over the last,
2: how long has that business been going for now, Michelle? We we launched it in 2016, this time 2016. Four years. Four years years old already. It's past its
0: total almost.
1: It has. It has. Now, anyway, welcome to the podcast, Michelle. It's a pleasure to have you here.
2: Oh, What an amazing intro, Annie. Thank you. That's amazing. You're very Thank welcome.
1: You. Now, first question, what are you drinking?
2: I'm drinking in my water bottle. I'm drinking uh, just water.
0: Oh, I'm got, I've got red wine. <laughs> oh, good on you. <laughs> and it's a, a Cote Rone. Very good. Very good. I, I'm in my most
1: enormous cup of uh, uh, mug of uh, good old English breakfast tea. Uh, Because it's a bit early for wine, even for me.
2: (laughs) Well, I'd like to have a wine, but I can't drink wine. Really? Why not? No. Oh, I've had numerous different sort of health conditions and I just can't really drink alcohol. Every time I try, I end up very, very ill. So I I I stick to my water.
1: Very sensible. Very sensible. All right, Kate, over to you for the first
0: question. I am going to ask you... What, what is the one thing that has most surprised you in your career? Ah,
2: what a great question. What's the one thing that's most surprised me in my career? Um, I think, and this will go against a lot of things and I'll be interested to hear your views on it, but I have always just believed that I could... Contribute wherever I wanted to contribute. And even if I was younger, or even if I was female, even if I didn't have experience or I wasn't educated in a particular area, um, I've been surprised that I can deep dive into a particular area and I'll give it a good crack and I'll model the best wherever they are or I'll fall over and scrape my knees. And I feel, I guess, surprised that I've had so many amazing opportunities to work with so many amazing different people and still not answering your question Uh, surprised me. I guess I feel surprised by that.
1: I think um, so a lot of people often talk about, you know, they perhaps don't have that innate confidence and, they surprise themselves when they do get stuck in and realize they can do things so I think you' what you've just articulated there is is it's the same perhaps problem that lots of people talk about but just from a different angle um, and I do I do wonder and you know my dad and I have been talking about it recently just that whole sort of he he never gave me any reason to doubt myself so I was very similar as well growing up as a kid. Um, for those of you who haven't met me in real life I'm only about five foot one I'm pretty small Um, but I've never felt small in any room I've ever been in you know that there's the what you bring to the world isn't just about your skin color your sex your size you know I I think I'm very similar actually Michelle I've always think that I've got something to add in pretty much most conversations i'm also very good at shutting up and listening to people as well because i think that's important too but and that that sort of innate confidence maybe it's something that you're you know, sort of it's it has to be nurtured when you're a kid
2: yeah I, I remember in my very first career i worked i studied hotel management and i worked in deluxe five star hotels and one of the roles that i had i was super young super inexperienced and at the time uh, the hotel I worked in was the number one hotel in Australia and we hosted all of the like government dignitaries so presidents and prime ministers of countries and, and there was lots of protocol and certain right ways to do things and then there was lots of you know very famous people rock stars and you know athletes and so on and part of my role was to host them and do red carpet arrivals with the federal police and all these sorts of things and there was lots of protocol and I accidentally would always break the protocol you weren't meant to ask them any personal questions you weren't meant to you mean you were meant to just be a silent person with no and then I would you know invariably ask them oh how you know ask them personal things (laughs) that I would always get into really beautiful but I just know that humans are valuable and equal and some people have more experience and expertise and they've studied in certain domains but um like like humans like to be treated with with friendliness and warmth and, um, you know, normal to have normal communication with people. So anyway, I used to always get in big trouble, big, big trouble for that um, all the time. (laughs) Um, And so, but that's how I learned so much. I just learned so much, you know, by being curious about other people and Mm. I wouldn't be offering anything to them. I'd just be asking questions. I'd just be deeply curious about whatever their thing was. And, but in a way that I would try to be in a way that wasn't, you know, like the fan or the you know the intrusive individual but just genuinely curious gotcha
1: all right my question for you to open you up a bit more um what's the one thing that you've done that you will never do again and it could be personal it could be career-oriented either or
2: (laughs) i'll never combine my finances with my partner
1: Interesting. And why is that?
2: Well, I've been through three financial settlements. um, And this is an interesting journey in terms of choices. And again, this belief that anything's possible. So, um, and that's come with three significant financial setbacks for me. um, And the way that that all went down and never, you know, when I look back and if I say to young women, you know, how do we handle our own money? There's an unconscious bias for women to combine our finances. And then when it comes to, you know, financial settlements, as we know, most often um, women fare very differently to men in those circumstances. And um, there's there's no need to, you know, one of my observations from coaching so many people, working with so many couples, um, there's no, you don't have to have your finances joined to be in a committed, loving, committed, long-term relationship. Um, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a real big insight for me. It's been a painful insight um, through that. I've been married once and had two other financial, you know, binding financial agreements sort of situations. And um, they've been very painful learnings. Um, but I think I think many people can benefit from understanding that you can still be because you feel like you are not going to be committed if you don't join all your finances together and have one pool and you're only all working together towards that goal um so yeah
1: it's an interesting one it's not one that I've um I I remember gosh years and years ago I was living with a guy and we ended up splitting up and I swore to myself that I would never be homeless again so I it was his apartment so I had to leave and I ended up having to move in with my parents again for a little while because I literally had nowhere else to go and I swore to myself I would never do that again I would always have even if it's only a tiny ass little apartment somewhere or, you yeah, know, have a, a, you know, a, a rental property that I can pull back if I need to. Yeah. Get, get kind of similar moment. How about you, Kate? Have you ever had had those well, conversations?
0: It's, it's the advice I always give to younger women. I always tell them a man is not a plan. So that, that's one thing. And um, my husband and I, we ran separate finances for like 20 years yeah. And eventually he just came to me and said, Can't you just look after it all for me? <laughs> so I now I now look after all of our finances. But um yeah. I think I can rely on him after 20 years. So you know. Yeah. That's fair. That's very fair.
2: And what and what made you decide to do that in the early place? What was the principles or the premise I behind just that? It never
0: occurred to me to do it because
2: yeah. you know,
0: he he used to earn a lot more than me. I was the poor one in those days, and I just thought, well. You know, we'll go halves in everything and not with, when I can't afford stuff, I'll be able to say, well, I can't afford to do that so I won't put money into it. So mm-hmm. That was how we did it and mm-hmm. uh, we went on that way for a really long time, obviously, 20 years is a long time. Um, <laughs> but, but then, and then he decided that, that with the mortgage and everything that we had, he just wanted someone else to look after it. So I think
1: that's a different moment, isn't it, when you're 20 years into a relationship and you realise one of you is actually just better at this stuff. <laughs>
0: Just better at it. Bless him. He doesn't understand the offset mortgage. He's a mathematician. <laughs> he's a math he's a maths teacher. Not just- <laughs> I know. I've tried drawing it on whiteboards and all sorts of things. Anyway, so he, it's, it's, you know, he's just decided. But yeah, I, I can understand why you say that. And I'm glad I did it at the time. Uh, um, hmm. You know, it would have been much easier if we did break up because it was really clear.
2: Yeah, I I am just such a person who's all in, all in, very collaborative. Want to do everything together. Um, what's mine is yours. Um, I always think you can recover from all of these things. But as you travel along in life and you go through those circumstances, it's it's. I think that the key insight for me is that it does those the the way the bank accounts and the assets are structured doesn't correlate and relate to the level of love and commitment
0: mm.
2: and sometimes that's a confusion yeah entering into those relationships
1: so so tell us a bit more about how you transitioned from being you know the, the sort of the, the classic kind of business and uh leadership coach into basically being a, a tech entrepreneur how did that happen
2: Well, I was having the honour and the privilege of coaching so many uh, founders of startups and high growth companies. And um, it was an extraordinary experience, like the the earlier career of working with the world's best, and then also working with people at various different stages of that journey and people struggling to raise capital or people, you know, having different challenges along that journey of scaling their, you know, their great idea or whatever it was. So I ended up doing that which was this sort of welfare study. I found a university in the UK to partner with me on the study and um, Dr. Sabina Kleitman from the University of Sydney. And we did, you know, an empirical study of looking at, is there any correlation between motivations um, and attitudes at work and these venture and business outcomes? And we found significant correlations. And then we spent four and a half years like taking those findings saying, okay, that data is super interesting, but does it have any impact? Does it make actually any difference? And so we applied it to over a thousand businesses and tracked them over four and a half years. And we saw that the data alone and the insight had an impact. But if people were coached, it had an impact. And if they were coached and mentored, um, it had a huge impact. And so I just got really passionate about wanting to be able to scale um, and make accessible those insights. But really importantly, coaching. Um, In the moment in the world, coaching is hugely not accessible to most people. Only the elite can have it, you know, the famous person or the, the athlete or the founder or the CEO, um, it's estimated the population that has coaching wouldn't even be half a percent. Um, and I don't think that, you know, coaching and self-actualization and people being empowered to realize who they are in the world and to make their mark in the world should be just, you know, for a small percentage of the population. So the whole idea of our platform is to democratize coaching and make it accessible and available to everyone. So... Um, there's three engines in the platform one is the people analytics that weas- measures people's motivations at work the second one is this benchmarking against the st- empirical studies and then the third one is um, releasing the world's first personal artificial intelligent coach so that um, anybody can have access to growth development their potential possibilities so that everyone can have access
1: I love and we asked earlier how, how old the business is so you are four years in yeah. How would you describe that four years so far?
2: <laughs> uh, well, the study itself, I did the study before sort of in, we yes. finished in 2013 or 2014. That was all hard, hard as I've ever done. And um, of course, I've had my coaching business for over 20 years now, but, um, you know, a tech business and you both know because you support so many people in the startup phase, It's really challenging. (laughs) Um, So we've had a lot of support. We've got some amazing investors and um, other people who've really believed in the idea of being able to make coaching available to other people. So um, I'm grateful to have a lot of support. It's a lot of learning. So I've been exhilarated by the challenges in myself that I've had to grow through in myself, Um, the constant, constant learning. Um, It's also exciting. It's super rewarding to be able to be at the precipice of inventing things um that's what gets me excited is inventing things mm. that help people um so it's exciting rewarding challenging sometimes caught up on a ball <laughs> looking in the mirror yes,
1: let's asking, Why am I doing this? sometimes that's just sit there and rock gently yep <laughs> we'll do that
0: well you know I've, I've had a couple of startups so it's it's a challenging thing to do um, but congratulations on getting to four years. That's an achievement considering most of them died before they're five. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's had its, it's had its, its ups and downs and journeys to be where we are today. So who do you get your coaching from? Uh, I work with all sorts of different people. So I've got different mentors that I go to for different topics of different things. Um, I'm so fortunate to have access to so many founders who've um, done amazing things. So Uh, They're all really excited about supporting coaching coming into the world because they've all benefited from it. So not all of them, but most of them are really keen to support that vision. Um, So from different founders. And um, I'm deeply into constantly working through my stuff as well. So I use different coaching techniques from different people. So I use a technique called neuroemotional technique, um, which is a coach. It coaches the body. And I found that to be really helpful for me to move so I and then I move stuff through my body. So one of the things that I've learned through coaching is that one thing is to make a mental shift, but unless you can do that through embodiment, where it's in the body and it comes out of expression and behavior, it's just an idea, just a concept. So I'm always keen to figure out how to accelerate things getting into the body and then it becoming just a natural and congruent and authentic.
1: Interesting. How would you, can you give us an example of what that would yeah. How that would manifest?
2: So the technique was developed for people who had serious pain and they weren't able to overcome their pain. And oh, okay. so chiropractors use the technique and they use a methodology called kinesiology. Have you ever experienced kinesiology? Mm-hmm. So yeah. They use kinesiology to coach basically the body. And so you go in with something that you want to break through or you want to develop or a limitation or a grief or a a hurt or whatever it is. And then um, through kinesiology, so for those of you who are listening, kinesiology is a scientific-based methodology that um, uses muscle testing to be able to speak beyond the conscious mind, to be able to ask your body questions. And through asking the body questions, they have a technique with the NET, the neuroemotional technique, which allows you to release things through your body or take on board new beliefs or ideas and to embed them into your nervous system, basically. So initially it was for pain relief, um, and now people use it for emotional pain relief, I guess, and for building new belief systems and for breaking through limitations.
0: So, so h- how, how have you used it? Can, can you give us an example? Yeah. I'm really fascinated by this.
2: Yeah, so I think part of why coaching is so innate to me, and it has been since I was very, very young, I was the girl at school that everyone told their problems to, I asked a lot of questions I was very curious I've just been this curious potentially as I said earlier annoying sometimes (laughs) person (laughs) Um, and so one of the things we measure in fingerprint for success is where do you author your decisions from are you internally referenced or are you externally referenced so those who are motivated by external reference they love data they love speaking to the expert they love looking you know looking at external references to be able to contribute to the decision or make the full decision and people who are very strong on internal reference are very strong at their own internal criteria their own following their own intuition their own gut feel and as a coach my role was very externally referenced I want you to facilitate your own answers your own decisions your own discoveries you know all of those things and so for me to transition from being facilitating others to make their decisions, it means that I was very low on that internal reference in that context. And so for me then, as a founder, um, the research in our data set found that high external reference for a startup founder was actually correlated with early stage venture failure. And um, it's so so innate in me, like I'd be in service, like my whole focus is on others. And, but I've got this big, audacious, hairy vision that I want to contribute to the world. Um, And if I don't, if I'm always externally referencing to others, um, I'm not, you know, backing my decisions as strongly as I could or trusting myself as much as I could or making a decision that other people really hate if it's the right decision for things. And so it, it, it got me into some difficult situations that, you know, really risk the business as well. And so I really had to commit to a journey of really working through that um, and being able to have choice over when I, when I, you know, reference other people for input into decisions and when I just make decisions and make the call and feel comfortable. Now, I could always do it. Everyone can do it. But I would it would be stressful for me and my body and um, strong leaders have to make decisions all the time that other people don't like, and so I've used the neuro-emotional, the NET technique, to be able to strengthen that in my centre, feel it and comfortable and authentic, rather than I'm, you know, doing it.
0: That's, That's really interesting thing. how you had to shift yourself from your customary mode of life, coach to the boss.
2: And- yeah, it's been very. I found it very, to be honest, very traumatic, um, because as a coach particularly with the people I've chosen to work with and they chose to work with me, I'm working with people who want to be real, authentic. They want to grow. They want to be on their knees to to become the best person they can be. They're contributing to big companies, many people's lives, or they're a politician or they're someone creating art that transforms the world and they're really committed to being all they can be. So my full days are sitting with people who are so committed to being vulnerable, real and open... And, um, and then, you know, the ratio of coaching, I've only got two coaching clients at the moment and now I'm, I'm full-time in building, you know, a commercial business. And I was just so blindsided and shocked in corporate, the corporate world, in corporate enterprise life, how I'm with extreme masks and charade of not being able to be comfortably vulnerable and open. And you'd ask them a real question, how are you? And they would give you something that you, they're meant to say. And and then it was not deep and meaningful, normal conversation. Now, I was on the other spectrum. And so my poor first team that I had, they were like, you asked too many personal questions, um, um, but but <laughs> I had- stop asking questions? Could you just stop? And I go, I don't mean to be, I just really want to know how you are today. You were sick last week, are you all right? Um, but I, but I didn't realize how that's not. People don't trust that as sincere. People, well, it's scar- that, scary. Isn't that?
0: Isn't that I, I'm, I'm sorry. Isn't that what <laughs> everybody does? Don't you like ask people if you know they were sick last week how they are? Don't like I do, and I know Annie would. Like, isn't that? It's, been, it's been interesting because I remember speaking with Michelle.
1: It's probably about two years ago now, and you're having a conversation about. How how hard it is to actually get customers to sign up and basically become a customer, particularly from an enterprise environment, because it just takes so long to go through the, you know, sort of the sales process and the procurement part of it. And you know, sometimes people will say things just to sort of, just to say things rather than they mean it. And you, you're like, well, if you don't want the product, that's fine. Just tell me. Right. Yeah just tell me but they don't do that they 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 keep yeah. you stringing you along and it's just yeah. it's fascinating how inefficient business really is where if we were just super honest mm. and saying no is
0: fine just tell me i can then move on i know i but, but it's really fascinating cuz cuz my background is large corporate so i've worked in really big global multinationals for most of my life and the enterprise sales cycle is ridiculously long. Mm. Um, But often I'm just not interested and I just go, no, I'm not interested. So I, I, and I think a lot of people are too polite to say that to someone's face, but I just don't think it's fair to waste. I don't know. I don't think it's
1: politeness. I think that they don't, they don't know how to say no, that it's confronting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'd rather, I'd
1: rather avoid having to have the tough conversation because saying, I don't want you or I don't want your product, perhaps may elicit yeah. a response that I'm not ready to deal with.
2: And and so that's one part of it. And the other part of it is just normal human conversation where people can be vulnerable and open around what's going on in their lives. Because work is so busy. People are under so much pressure. Um people don't have time to engage at a really human to human level and I came out of an environment where that's all my world was about (laughs) all I did for 20 years that's what I had become accustomed to was normal um and so it was super confronting and actually really sad I had so much grief I cried a lot a lot um at how sad we've become as humans in our little rat race of you know still people still wanting to do good Things commit nothing about that. It's just a way to pattern that we as humans got have got into um, of being a little bit mechanical and being a little bit guarded and not trusting that people and therefore not being completely honest, as you were just saying. Um, And um, and you think that's normal, Kate? But you're here running a podcast where you want to have real conversations with people. So you're you're probably in my spectrum.
0: (laughs) It's really interesting because one of the things that I think my job is as a boss as a manager and leader of people is to create a psychologically safe workplace where everyone can achieve. Yeah. And you do that when it's safe, where you feel safe. And so that's the kind of environment that I try to create where it's safe to make mistakes. It's not all the time. We don't like them all the time, but yeah. And And, it and, and that it's okay to say stuff. And yeah. I think it's really, um, maybe I've just been, running my own shows for so long that I've forgotten how bad it is. Cause I've worked for hideous managers. They all have. And when you think about everything about them made it, made me feel unsafe in the workplace.
2: And that was why I chose to actually coach founders of startups and high growth ventures is because in the coaching with them, they would go there so far. Same with actors and producers and creative artists. Mm. Um, There's no benefit from not being totally vulnerable and open and raw and just getting to the heart of something. And um, that's why I chose that population to coach because, Mm. one, they would go there. Two, they've got a lot on the line. They've got investors and customers and team members. And if if they're a genuine entrepreneur, they care about those things deeply. Um, And thirdly, they're fast to take action on those things. They don't sit with them a Mm. lot. Um, I was coaching lots of senior executives in many different corporations locally in in America and Europe and so on. And um, in in the enterprise, it would take a long time in a program for them to warm up and realise that they could speak out loud their their new things and that they could um, be vulnerable with an idea that they have. have have. And, And by the end of a coaching program, they would get there. But the conditioning in those environments to toe the line, to be, be, um, to be, you know, really, really hurt my soul, I think. And, um, you know, part of when I left corporate corporate life, um, I was 25 or six when I left corporate life and I made that decision that I wanted to transform the way that those things happen. Um, and so my hope is through FRS and the technologies and tools that we're creating that we'll be able to empower people to be able to be themselves at work, to mm. be able to be... Have real conversations and be safe, like you said, Kate, do that. I, so I do what advice,
1: what advice, advice would you have for any other women out there or any other folks who are listening, actually? Or just on that point, Michelle, what advice do you have for anybody who would like to be a little bit more like that in yeah. their workplace or with their teams or perhaps even in their personal life as well? What advice do you have?
2: Well, it's kind of interesting. Isn't it because it, it? sounded so confident, didn't I? <laughs> see, like I'm saying, I could do anything in my career. But, but what you're seeing is is that d- despite that part of me that does feel that confident, there's that other part of me that feels so different and feels, um, you know, really vulnerable in those environments. Like I, 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 it's very hard to be yourself in those environments, isn't it? Even if you are confident and courageous, mm-hmm. um, it just feels super out on a limb. And so I think the learnings have been for me to really accept myself the way I am and to get to a place of acceptance of my quirkiness and that I am, you know, a bit weird sometimes or a lot of the time. Um, So the first one is that self-acceptance. And then the second one is um, practising the skill of feedback. So I think great executives and great leaders and anyone who cares the skill of observing what's going on in a dynamic and then learning the art of being able to reflect it back and to pose questions and ask people to go meta to their experience at work. And it could just be as simple as a very simple thing. I had this moment, um, at the end and then we'll, you know, we'll say, well, we didn't get much done or, you know, we don't have an agenda or, you know, whatever. And then I can also contribute and say, and and I, felt like we weren't that honest today, you know, whatever it is. I'm wondering if there's something in the way for us to speak truthfully about what happened. And then it could be an awkward moment, you know, it's a little zinger out there and then the next meeting. And we just, we just progressively open it up and um, invite people, but also be a role model. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn is that I'm very expressive of my emotions. Um, I haven't always been, but I've learned to be more comfortable with that. And um, so Particularly in tech environments, most um, people in a technical environment are much more neutral in their communication. They don't show as much facial expressions or tone of voice changes or, you know, those sorts of things. They might be much more thoughtful about the words they choose. And our data shows this from FRS as well. Um, so in those environments, I can choose words that express emotions, but I'm not going to overwhelm someone. It's all just I mean, it's being that conscious, thoughtful. It's not just my need to, for human connection, but finding ways to deeply connect with people that are meaningful for them. And it may be not showing any emotion, but it might be sending them a note and just saying some words that would be meaningful to them or not saying anything, whatever it is for that person. So I think I think being mindful of our own needs, not requiring other people to be a certain way um, and lowering my expectations that other people need to be vulnerable, that other people need to be open and um, invite what I can do to contribute to create spaces for just people to be themselves.
0: That is, that is really lovely. So how did you two meet?
1: <laughs> uh, we met, met oh, gosh, we must have known each other for about six or seven years now.
2: It was at D. was it your first year?
1: Yeah, it was in the first year. So, uh, a mutual friend of ours, a guy, wonderful guy called Mick Levinskis. Um Hey, Nick. Love you, Love you Mick. Mick uh, had been, I think, Mick and Michelle have known each other for a little longer than um, longer than that as well. And, and and actually, it was at the time when you were transitioning your research into the solution of you know the fingerprint for success as it exists today. And we actually ran. Um so Mick and I started a, a, a basically a, a corporate funded startup accelerator um, based in Sydney. And we were a new team as well. But we also thought that perhaps Michelle's solution could be useful for some of the founders that were going through the accelerator. So we did we did F4S uh, on ourselves first before we forced the founders to go through it, too. <laughs> and it was fascinating um, on lots of different levels. I learned a lot about myself. But I also learned a lot about my team and how to work better with them. And what Michelle just described of you know, to be a great leader, you you have to obviously you know sort of share as much as you can about the or, or show the behaviour that you want to see in your team to model that. But also you you do need to know perhaps what the weaknesses are of or the the blind spots. I think is a better way of putting it of your team so that you can be aware that in a lot of cases, that person will typically make this mistake on a regular basis. And it's not because they're not super smart. It's just, it's a blind spot for them. And you, as a leader, if you're aware of those things, you can kind of be be more mindful of that, help make sure that those moments may not happen, or at least that that person in your team is aware that they have that blind spot and they're a little bit more alert to um, perhaps those those mistakes as and when they get made. But super interesting to have gone through that. And then I've applied it on a couple of different team structures beyond that as well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a great tool. And it's something that I would thoroughly recommend to any person out there who perhaps has set up a new team, and they really need to kind of build that culture. Um, or they want to understand the culture of the team that they have versus the one that they want to build. And obviously, the same goes for any founder out there building a company, it's it's a super useful tool. So that's what I remember of the process anyway. Did I get that right, Michelle?
2: You sure <laughs> did. You sure did. And what my learning was is that Annie had come from an enterprise environment into this, this, um, you know, one of the Australia's first accelerators, really. Um, and what Annie and Mick were doing together was really, really groundbreaking. It was super challenging and all sorts of things. And um And then I was presenting FRS, it was still quite, you know, fumbling around in how we were presenting it because we hadn't sort of really got the value proposition right. Um, despite the tools and the technology and the research all being there and so I did this sort of fumbling presentation to Annie and in and all of her important rigour she had lots of rigorous questions and challenges and (laughs) and and I quite a bit reactive and um, and um, Annie was beautiful and um, was very earnest in her approach to it and it was just an awesome experience and I learned a lot from that experience so yeah.
0: Oh that is that is marvellous and and I love that it is all data-driven and that is really powerful to me because I'm always talking about how we need to shift to making data-driven decisions. Uh, not that I want to be be con- constrained by the data, but I think data can guide us better than our gut feelings sometimes. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's it's one of the points that we make is that it's an extra data point to support your gut feel. So if if you've got a gut feel on something, you can get some of this data that says, ah, and it doesn't have to be a defining point that says I will or I won't work with you or you're in or you're out or whatever it is. It's like, oh, that's what makes you tick. Hmm. Oh, that's your genius and your talent or that's a blind spot. So, you know, my blind spot is I'm going to ask too many questions. So I have to reel it in. Um, it's, you know, people just understand that that's how we are. So it, for me, it's about diversity and creating diverse teams. And it's about cognitive diversity. And when we can embrace that, and that's why we do call it blind spots rather than weaknesses, is because in one context, like my external reference is my, my talent as a coach, because if I can tell you what to do, I'm going to be a mentor and a teacher and not a coach. I'm not going to tease out of you your unique genius. So that's a, a strength for me in a coaching context, but it's a blind spot in another context. And very often we can be too black and white about weaknesses and use them universally rather than contextually.
0: And I think that's a really, really valuable insight. And we're out of time. So thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, Annie. It's Really good. It was a really fascinating conversation.
1: No, that was so. I, I've honestly, I just had to look at the clock and going, really, we've run out of time already. I
2: know. <laughs> well, it's so lovely to speak to you both. Thank you for the thought-provoking questions. Really, really yeah. different kind of conversation. So, thank you. Makes my thank heart you happy. Very much.
0: <laughs> and please leave us a good review because that would be nice. And we'll be back shortly. Thanks. Bye.